Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, founder of Functional Health Info and the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I've set out to find some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Rob Verkirk. Rob is an internationally acclaimed scientist with over 30 years experience in sustainability, specifically in the fields of agriculture, food production, and healthcare. In 2002, he founded the Alliance for Natural Health International, an independent non-profit organization that promotes natural, sustainable, and biocompatible approaches to healthcare using good science and good law. So, without further ado, Rob, welcome to the show. Ben, absolute pleasure to, to be talking to you today. So Rob, just to jump in straight away, um, ANHI is now a well-established organisation influencing government policy and promoting healthy living and sustainability in healthcare. What motivated you to found this organization in 2002? Well, Ben, the, the issue back then was um, I, I was I was um, I had no intention really ever of leaving Imperial College. Um, in fact, at the time, just a few months before I decided to, to set up A&H, I'd been offered a permanent position. But I had been increasingly taunted by what was happening in the world of nutrition um, and also in the field of um, supplementation. And uh, I was no great fan of the principle of supplementing with chemical forms of nutrients. But I was well aware that there was a large portion of people that were struggling to get all the nutrients that their bodies needed for healthy function. Um, and so there were a, there was one company in particular that approached us um, for me to give a talk about the declining quality of um, of the global food supply. Um, they also had a range of supplements based completely on on natural products. Right. And said, look, these EU laws that are coming along um, seem to be a bit of an obstacle for us if we're going to carry on selling in Europe because the natural sources of nutrients we are using are not on an EU positive list. So I looked closely at what was going on. There were a number of campaigns that were already um, in action, um, and everything was very much about attacking the system, um, assuming that uh, obviously the pharmaceutical companies were behind it, that the... Uh, members of the European Parliament that would be making a decision on these EU laws um, were in cahoots with the pharma companies, and um, so you st better start attacking the MEPs. Um, when I looked closely at this, I thought, you know, it's only about a month before the European Food Supplements Directive goes to vote. I 
did sign up and uh, as a supporter of what one of the campaigns in Germany, um, but was increasingly of the of the view that if you attack people who you actually need to bring on board, you're not going to get anywhere. And um, so, in essence, I was persuaded to see what we could do. I took a, a brief you know, three weeks sabbatical from, from my work at Imperial College yes. to see if we could have an impact on changing the voting on the EU Food Supplements Directive. Cut a long story short, we created a 2,000% shift um, in the space of, 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 of two weeks of very intense lobbying. We hired a, uh, a public affairs company, uh, a public relations company. We worked around the clock. Um, and we took a sort of constructive approach to the problem. Essentially, yes, pharmaceutical industry was behind it, um, but the MEPs are not the enemy. They they need education. They need information. The minute they had this information, they changed their view. Um, however, we didn't manage to completely um, block the the passage of of the law, um, and. Subsequently, we decided to take a legal action, and um, some three years later, we got clarification through the European Court of Justice um, that natural sources uh, of vitamins and minerals were outside the scope of the directive and therefore could not be banned. So that that really was the the start of the process for us to protect um, natural forms of of of, uh, of nutrition. Um, in essence, if you look at all areas of sustainability, um, where they're being challenged by corporate interests, whether you're looking at energy and, say, fossil fuels, you're looking at agriculture and the battle between conventional farming and organic and biodynamic farming, um, if you're looking at tourism, the difference between ecotourism and uh, conventional uh, tourism, yes. there is always a battle of interests, and um, and I think essentially we're we're kind of moving to a place where if we start to look at the world through an ecological lens, given that we are part and parcel of the biosphere, we are codependent on all the other organisms with which we share the planet. You start to come to a different perspective about the decisions that we need to make if we're going to ensure that um, we have energy, agriculture, healthcare available to future generations. And um, and so really what AMH has been about, I, I cut a long story short again, I, <laughs> I decided to not take up the permanent position at um, Imperial and, and to really set up ANH not just as a short-term campaign organization, but as an organization that really um, I could um, help develop, if you like, the mission that will take me the course of the rest of my life and um, and then hopefully carry um, an increasing team with, with us and, and build collaborations around the world to allow people who share a similar vision to work together. And that, that's the reason we call it an alliance. It is it is a true alliance. That's wonderful and such a huge undertaking. And it seems the initial success that you had was really the catalyst to start it all. It, exactly. That that was that was um, an important catalyst. And of course, um, the canvas that we're painting and working with um, is it, just getting bigger and bigger all the time. And um, 
you know, the, the challenges are, are obviously also greater, but we're in a very, very different position now in the sense that there is a much larger group of people that are able to understand the issues and see them in the way that we see them through this ecological lens. Yes, and just speaking about that bigger canvas, it seems that you've broadened um, what you specialise in. With your background primarily in agriculture, when did your interest shift towards nutrition? Well, I've, I've had a personal interest in nutrition um, as long as I can remember. Um, you know, it, it, um, it helps that genetically I do have uh, a gene that we, uh, we nickname the death by buffet gene. So um, it doesn't take me very long to start thinking about food. And, and of course, um, given that I also have uh, a bunch of genes that predispose me to insulin resistance and, uh, and obesity, um, you know, intermittent fasting um, is, you know, time-restricted feeding is a really important part of my my protocol. It just means that when I do get round to eating, I'm I'm really really interested in food. Um, but <laughs> uh, so, um, but of course, while I was working um, in sustainable agriculture, the area that I was involved in was is an area we call multi-trophic interaction. So it's looking really at um, at at crop plant quality and looking at the interactions with all the different trophic levels, the herbivores, the, um, you know, the, the, the predators and the parasitoids and the hyperparasitoids and how you create stable um, agroecosystems within this complexity. And um, in essence, a stable system is a diverse system. And um, so, um, you know, I was very familiar with, with components. The, the particular systems that I used to work on were cruciferous systems. And I was very well aware of the fact that um, if you look at some of the more recent um, cultivars of cruciferous vegetables, you know, the, the broccoli, cabbage um, yes. family, um, you'll find that many of the bitterness principles, you know, the, the glucosinolates, for example, um, are reduced. Um, and, and of course, in reducing them, not only are the plants um, more deficient in terms of their ability to tolerate attack from insect pests, you also reduce the those those same secondary metabolites also have um, cancer protective properties for humans and actually they play off a off a whole range of different networks and so it was really during my time at Imperial College when I was um, you know I would meet with medics and say to them you know are you aware of how the um, the the plant breeding that is going on in the food supply is actually providing increasingly fewer nutrients that are cancer protective. So I was already aware of the analogy between what is happening in healthcare where people are becoming increasingly more dependent on pharmaceutical drugs and antibiotics and seeing the parallel between that and what was happening in agriculture where we're actually, because of the plants that we're growing, um, actually starting to become more and more dependent on agrochemicals. And so if you, if you want to get into a more stable agroecosystem, you need a diverse system with a diverse range of organisms within it, with rich living soils 
um, with very rich microbial life. If you want a healthy human system, you need to have a very diverse diet. You need to have a very rich and diverse um, microbiome, um, and you need to have um, humans, you know, that that are being born naturally. Um, you know, all my children, you know, even back in the when I had my first batch of kids, they were home births um, and um, no intervention. Um, and um and breastfed for as long as possible yes. um didn't go on to infant formula uh so uh, you know very i've had for a long period of time an understanding that that uh we are we have evolved in a very specific way alongside of nature and the more we play with those rules the less dependent we will be on things like pharmaceuticals and agrochemicals and you just briefly mentioned the microbiome there, and it's just amazing the very compounds which feed the microbiome, uh, the antioxidants which are in the vegetables that we grow, are the very antioxidants that we are b becoming deficient in because the way we're growing the vegetables and the plants. Exactly. I mean, if if we could, um, you know, if we could move a focus at the moment, you know, and and I don't know we'll probably touch on this later, but the we still have, for example, in the UK through Public Health England this major focus on calorie counting but yes. when when do you hear people counting polyphenols you know and yet it is very very easy to measure total polyphenols um and if people could start to understand if they were consuming colorful um plates of of, of vegetables and salads and with a diverse range of fruits their polyphenol levels would be right up there and these are these are, you know, superfoods for, for the microbiome, for the microbiota within the microbiome. Um, but of course, that education is still a long way off. The research is getting their head around it. Um, and if we're not careful, um, it could take another 10, 10 or 20 years for that information to, you know, dribble down to the, the public. And of course, as an NGO, we see our role as accelerating the transfer of that information, often via practitioners. But, um, but also directly to the public. And these polyphenols don't even stop at the microbiome. They have truly systemic effects and health-promoting, longevity-promoting effects. And there should be more of a focus on it. I do agree with you there. Still on the topic of nutrition, um, you speak out a lot about nutrition and various studies shown to demonize fat within the diet. Um, how has your opinion on nutrition changed over the years? I understand the ANH Food for Health plate indicates a higher proportion of calories from fat or a portion of nutrients, maybe I should say, from fat and protein over carbohydrate. Yes, you know, the, the uh, I, I would be, um, and, and I've always felt this way, I, I've, I feel we've got a very limited understanding, you know, at, at the level of the public. And in fact, this often stretches through to, to government and the health authorities. By categorizing carbohydrates in one group and proteins in another group and fats in a third group. Um, we are simplifying things to such an extent that if we focus only on those groups, we can get it wrong. So it would be wrong to say that everyone should be consuming high fat diets where the profile of the fatty acids is, is, is not considered at all. So there is such a thing as a as an unhealthy um, fatty acid profile, and there is such a thing as a, a healthy fatty acid profile. So bottom line is that the 
this this view obviously over three to four decades um, since the the seven countries study and the work of Ansel Keys, we bought into a view that we should consume low fat diet, diets. I think there is now pretty much consensus that there were insufficient data to support that. Um, that promoted um, a um, low-fat diet, which meant that people substituted um, caloric intake for consuming more carbohydrate. And of course, at the same time, we saw a massive change in the degree of food processing that was going on. So the, the, the level of, of, of uh, processing of carbohydrates, even if we're looking at so-called whole grain um, you know, if you look at many cereals today that are sold to children that are called whole grain, they are processed to such a degree that when you measure their glycemic index or their glycemic load, the speed at which those carbohydrates are converted to blood glucose, yes. they behave in exactly the same way as highly refined, um, you know, highly processed refined carbohydrates. So disaccharides, you know, um, um, monosaccharides. Absolutely. So, so processing is is a big problem. And put those two things together, we have a major a major issue. So, uh, what governments have have been failing to do is to tell people how much fat they should consume. Um, this notion that we need to consume a diet that is comprised of fifty percent energy from carbohydrates also has no basis. Um, we believe it would be helpful for people to understand that that actually carbohydrates are not essential macronutrients we are not obligate carbohydrate consumers mm -hmm. um, we are obligate fat and protein consumers and if we're going to consume fats yes we've got to think carefully about um, fatty acid profiles you know we if, if you start tampering with with natural fatty acid profiles you can actually do yourself quite some harm so and there you're talking about the the trans fatty acids which i believe have made a massive reduction within the uk yes so trans fatty acids are obviously all the hydrogenated fats are, are, are a major issue but if you look even at um cow's milk for those people who are not uh, uh lactose intolerant if you look at whole milk, you'll see a very different fatty acid profile compared with um, partially skimmed or fully skimmed milk. And one of the things that happens that when you skim the milk is you remove um, palmitoleic acid, which is also known as omega-7. And the more we look at palmitoleic acid, again, one of the saturated fats, it is a very, very special lipid modulator. It is, it is a a, a, a fat that we really can can benefit from, and it can modulate um, all sorts of processes, including lipid metabolism itself. Yes. So, um, so that's one of the reasons that when you look at the observational studies um, on whole milk, you actually see much better long-term outcomes, both in terms of all-cause mortality, um, cardiovascular disease, etc., than you do for people who's, who are consuming skim milk. And of course. The average person still unfortunately thinks that if they're going to consume milk, they should be consuming partially skimmed or, or fully skimmed milk, um, again, with no scientific evidence behind that at all. It seems absurd that people aren't aware of this information. I suppose half the, half the battle is making it accessible to the consumer and really getting this information across to the general public. 
the difficulty for the consumer is the lack of consensus. So the consumer is hit with so many different pieces of information that the all the noise ends up causing them to put their head in the sand, and that that is altogether unhelpful. Um, what we try and do is to try and, if you like, and excuse the analogy, sort the wheat from the chaff, <laughs> so that people can start to see where there is coherence in the science, where there is some consensus. And um, and actually, when you look carefully at the data, it isn't as confusing as a lot of people think. Um, and if you like, our um, ANH Food for Health guidelines are the result of what we think is is a pretty solid batch of evidence. We, we've got you know around about 150 solid references many of which are, are reviews, so consensus reviews with multiple additional studies within them that support that approach. Um, we also work with the Food for Health plate with a lot of clinicians around the world. And on the whole, we see people responding incredibly positively to going on to, to that kind of a, a dietary approach. Great. And just for listeners, I will put a link to the Food for Health plate and the Food for Health guidelines in the description below. Just to play devil's advocate for a second, the work from the anthropologist Weston A. Price and also more recently Dan Buetner's work on the Blue Zones find a range of dietary patterns with people able to flourish on a range of macronutrients from a very high carbohydrate, low fat diet to a very high fat, low carbohydrate diet. What is your take on this? Do you think everyone would be able to, to benefit from the A&H food for health plate or do you think there's some individuals which would benefit from a higher carbohydrate lifestyle ben that's always an interesting question that the our sense is that there are always multiple factors at work so when you look at a higher carbohydrate diet um you know for example consumed by the highland sardinian populations the first blue blue zone identified the the bottom line is what else are they consuming and what you'll find is that there is almost no processing involved. Um, you'll find that there is a very high polyphenol level um, within the diet. You'll also see on top of that, people are generally very active for large parts of the day. Um, you'll see that they have um, intact familial systems, so um, psychosocial stress is very low. So it would be wrong to say that people have exceptionally high longevity because that is a high carbohydrate diet what we don't have is data from those people should they go on a higher fat diet they're consuming what they're consuming because that's what's available to them locally um, and you know what one of the things to, to appreciate is that while you can find biogeographical areas of the world that have especially high concentrations of, of centenarians it doesn't mean that we as individuals or households or small communities within cities or rural areas in any part of the world can't do the same. It's just that the chances are our neighbor won't be doing the same. So when you look at it from a, you know, a, a biogeographical perspective, you don't see another blue zone. But there are plenty of people who are making choices 
that give them especially good health. And, you know, that that's one of the things I, I love about what is happening in the, you know, functional medicine and lifestyle medicine community, um, being supported by practitioners who are looking at health, not just from a nutritional perspective, but from a nutrition and lifestyle perspective. And they're putting all of these things together. And, and obviously people like Rangan Chatterjee have, have become a real voice for this. And, and that is starting to have a big impact on the public. I'm advocating also to speak about Rongan's work and the Four Pillar Plan quite often. He really has brought about, or should I say, make the science accessible to the consumer and really popularize this lifestyle medicine movement, which I think is extremely important to reducing the level of chronic illness in our society. Uh, absolutely. And just for the diamond question, I know you mentioned this before, given the the current obesity appetite, epidemic and knowing that it's multifactorial how do you propose a solution to this a big part of the that solution is actually captured within the blueprint for health system sustainability that we're publishing next month um, it's been out in consultation it's going to be very widely endorsed but essentially a multifactorial problem requires a multifactorial solution absolutely and a, you know, Public Health England has uh, very much a, a limited, uh, you know, angle to its proposed solution, which is still focused on the area that we consider to be almost entirely irrelevant, which is um, just focusing on calorie counting. Um, so um, the bo bottom line is, in terms of its causes, we're very clear in terms of looking at the overall science that um, it is a matter of significant metabolic um, dysfunction that occurs at the level of these super control systems, the protein kinase controlling systems like AMPK um, and mTOR, um, that you get dysregulation of, of basically hunger and satiety, you get um, dysregulation of energy storage and utilization, so that people who are moving down the pathway towards obesity. And remember that in most people, where you have a population that is obese, it is something that happens quite slowly. So the average weight gain for people um, is about one kilogram a year. So it's not something they notice um, particularly easily. They may just feel that that's part of the process of getting older and Yes, you have to move from a 30-inch waist to a 32 to a 34 over a period of successive years. Yes. And, and, um, but, but underlying all of that is this fundamental dysregulation of multiple systems within our metabolism that causes people to continue to want to eat even in the face of sufficient um, energy being on board. Essentially, our, our adipose tissue, the fat that we store under our skins, is our long-range fuel t tanks. And, and we, are, we are actually built for fasting. We are adapted through our evolution for fasting. What we're not adapted to is having food on every street corner. So that process, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, and, and really at the a big consensus meeting that um, the BMJ and Swiss RE um, organized a couple of weeks back in, in Switzerland. Um, I think 
pretty much all of us at the meeting. There were about 200 of us from around the world who, who were invited, you know, to, to consider some of the, the big issues in, in nutrition. Um, I think we, we all agreed that snacking has been one of the biggest problems within the, in, in, in terms of driving the obesity epidemic. Because, you know, people will, they'll get up in the morning, they'll generally have a high glycemic index breakfast. They will then mid morning have another high glycemic carbohydrate based um, snack. And, and, and again, you know, at lunch, they will very often have carbohydrate with very limited fat and protein that, that helps modulate the, the glycemic response as well. They'll have another snack mid afternoon. There are, you know, children who are basically getting a lot more um, caloric intake from snacks than they are from, from actual square meals. But it is this, this chronic exposure to food, this, the fact that many people are not going for more than two or three hours before another, you know, eating episode that pushes us into a place where our blood glucose levels are insulting the cell membranes, which is pushing us towards insulin resistance, which of course moves us towards metabolic syndrome, obesity, type 2 diabetes itself. Um, one of the drivers there as well has been um, the dietitian industry. And I, I call it an industry because it is effectively functions as such. It works very closely in cahoots with the, the food industry. And um, because the job of a, a dietitian um, is to do things like manage blood glucose, dietitians were aware that if you have a smaller meal, even if it's the same meal, you will reduce the height or the concentration of of um, of, of blood glucose. Yeah, postprandially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so they they felt that this little eating little and often approach would be something that uh, would be better in the long term because the the spike wouldn't be as high. What they failed to understand is that these repeated chronic um, blood glucose spikes that occur when you don't engage in intermittent fasting actually end up pushing you towards um, insulin resistance at a much quicker rate. And of course, once it becomes insulin resistance, and especially once it becomes type 2 diabetes, it's no longer the job of the, of the dietitian. They hand it over to the GP who will um, look at, say, HbA1c and say, ah, now we need to put you on metformin. So you move into the the drug prescription model and um, and the system works very very nicely unless you're the patient and of course along that journey you are never told that if you were to hold back on eating and move to say consuming two meals a day and cutting out snacking that you could get yourself out of um, type 2 diabetes very quickly um, so we were also being told that type 2 diabetes itself is incurable um, and, you know, once you've started going down that slippery slope, you'll be there for the rest of your life. I think, again, we're moving towards another point in consensus where um, it is understood that there is a real solution in terms of remission from type 2 diabetes. And it does not involve drugs, but it does involve changing the way you eat, changing the way you move and changing the way you think. 
And the, the way you think is so powerful is people tend to have an emotional attachment to food. I was speaking to Deanna Minish recently and she was talking about this, how people will find comfort in a certain type of food, whether that be chocolate or anything like that. If they've had a bad day, they'll go to chocolate. If they've had an argument, they'll go to chocolate. And it's this like never-ending cycle of wanting to lose weight, maybe um, restricting calories, having low blood glucose, getting a low mood, and then going back to binging out on something which they find comfort from, which is normally a high-calorie, sweet, high-fat food. Yeah, the, the, the fact is that big food understands this only too well. They know all about the opioid system, the reward pathways within the brain that are satisfied by um, not only sugars, but actually this 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 bliss point. So there's a huge amount of R&D that's been going on. And of course, uh, there is now quite a spotlight on that, fortunately. But um, where you combine the magic level of sugar combined with fats and salt that provide this bliss point that takes people into this sense of comfort. And of course, it's, it's, it's comfort from a, uh, you know, a neurotransmitter um, perspective. But, of course, it creates huge discomfort to pretty much every other metabolic system. And, of course, that involves changing the way you think about your long-term health to get yourself out of that pattern to move outside, if you like, your comfort zone. I know we're short on time, Rob, so I'm just going to move move towards uh, the, the position paper which you spoke about briefly before. Uh, and it's entitled A Blueprint for Health System Sustainability Within the UK. And in that, you outline 10 hallmarks of a sustainable health system. Can you briefly explain for listeners uh, or maybe outline the fundamental differences of this system to the one that we have now? Well, the, essentially, we, the, the primary system that we call a healthcare system is really a health care system that is engaged in delivery of goods and services. And um, the, the, through the process of um, essentially doctors being the interface of that system, um, people have become disengaged from, you know, taking responsibility from their own health. They've become disempowered. The, the language that is used by medical doctors is one that isn't immediately familiar to lay people. It's interesting when you look at the profession of law, um, you may recall several years ago there was a big movement to change the language that lawyers would use um, in dealing with their their clients. And, um, you know, they moved to a kind of plain English approach increasingly so that the rest of the world could understand what on earth they were talking about. <laughs> that hasn't happened to the same extent um, with, uh, you know, with, with medicine. And... Um, Essentially, what the blueprint is about is creating a system that actually puts the individual back in the driving seat of their own health, allows them to understand that they have 12 facets of their biological terrain that are within their control that they can evaluate at three different levels, either at the self level, at the guided level, where they are basically um, taking data from some kind of system, it may be a device, it may be a questionnaire, um, it may be a measurement that they get from a lab, 
but they, they then need some support to interpret that data. And then you've got the, if you like, the hard biomarkers that are measured through functional testing, you know, biomedical tests um, that tell you where you are in relation to these 12 facets of, of the terrain. Yes. Now, if if those all those areas are in balance, essentially you have homeostasis. You have a body that is um, resilient, that is able to tolerate stress, and that has a very low chance of, of manifesting disease, assuming it's not genetically compromised. Now, essentially, what we've been creating is a language that allows both the individual and practitioners from any modality, whether they're in the mainstream or in any of the CAM professions, but also fitness professionals and um, psychotherapists, people in the um, psychological area, Absolutely. so that everyone has a common language to, to look at this. Um, and, um, and, and that can be very empowering. It also means that we don't need to have a system that focuses on, you know, what we often call name it and tame it, where you diagnose a disease and then you try and tame it with a drug. What yes. you do instead is you try and find balance because, again, you're looking at the whole system via an ecological lens and you're finding balance in the system. So if you are imbalanced in four systems and balanced on another eight, you know what the priority is for you to work on and it may be that you seek support from specific types of practitioners that can help you in those areas. So you're immediately empowered to, to go to the right person. Um, if we look in the CAM world at the moment, um, you know, sometimes people will have a given problem and they will find that they have a, a nutritionist that is the person that's nearest to them. But if you have a, a stress, a psychosocial stress related problem, nutritionist may not be the best person. Um, vice versa, an acupuncturist may be the best person for one individual, but not for another. So it's almost as if the, the direct uh, um, approach of the public to a CAM professional is to the, the specialist. Um, in the mainstream world, we have a generalist that is the interface of primary care. It's the general practitioner. But the specialist that the GP may refer you to is a specialist at looking at the downstream disease. So if your disease is manifested in such a way that you have immune system problems, you go and see an immunologist. But that doesn't mean that um, immunology provides the solution where the, if you like, the upstream cause or multiple causes started. So if you like, both models are defective, essentially, if you're going to have a truly sustainable system. Yes. What what we need in a sustainable system is essentially an upstream system that is able to um, determine uh, dysfunctions at a very early stage prior to pathogenesis, prior to the manifestation of clinical symptoms, so that you can deal them with, with them as early as possible. What, what that essentially means is that you don't want to have all of the measurements occurring only in places that are about disease care and disease management, because that's too downstream. So you need healthcare happening in schools, in homes, in workplaces, 
but you need individuals to be able to evaluate their own terrain so they can see what's in balance and what's out of balance so they can apply, um, you know, and find the appropriate specialists and support to bring things into balance. Um, so that's, that's one of the fundamental principles in terms of how the individual manages their health. What we've also identified is 10 hallmarks of a sustainable health system. And yes. that's, that, that's looking at, at, if you like, the big picture, the, the macro environment of the individual. Um, you know, what they are doing to be able to, um, create a system that's going to be able to be there, um, not only for this generation, for, but for subsequent generations. And, um, and that means, you know, for example, minimizing reliance on pharmaceutical agents. Where people are engaged with polypharmacy, it would mean that you have a deprescription strategy for that individual, but it's not just deprescription along, say, nice guidelines. It's deprescription that is supported by a, a, um, a parallel diet and lifestyle program that is personalized to that individual. Um, so you, you, you'll be looking at the sustainability from a, you know, a fiscal point of view, an economic point of view, an environmental point of view. Um, it has to be inv- individual centered. You can't have a system that does not take into account patient needs. So if you look at the moment, the problems that are happening in the UK with the NHS being pushed by a small band of skeptics to um, close down the supply of homeopathy to patients that are calling for it is rather strange given that, first of all, um, pretty much all the meta-analyses that have been conducted on homeopathy show an effect that is beyond placebo. And secondly, if you look at the fourth principle of the NHS constitution, it specifically talks about the importance of catering for patient needs. Um, and um, unfortunately, we're in a situation where if people don't understand a mechanism, they will discount the modality. And um, my sense is that in most of these um, healthcare areas, we don't understand all of the mechanisms, but we start to see the pattern of what combinations of multifactorial strategies start to deliver very, very positive effects. And, you know, functional medicine is one of the areas of medicine that, that, that leads in this area. But of course, if you look at many traditional systems of medicine from Ayurveda to even, um, TCM and Unani and, um, you know, many of the South, South American traditions or Southern African traditions, you'll see that they also embody this kind of whole system approach, this multifactorial approach that works with nature rather than is opposed to nature. Yes, I think you touched on an excellent point as well, talking about skeptics. Well, I've mentioned it on the show before. There is a huge difference between skepticism and cynicism. And I think we're seeing just a huge rise in the amount of cynicism against these natural approaches just because people either don't understand, like you alluded to, or don't even want to understand and don't want to try and understand the mechanism and therefore disregard it anyway. 
Um, and I think it's important people apply skepticism. I think healthy skepticism is important, but to look into the science and really make their own informed decision. Well, look, I couldn't agree with you more, Ben. Um, I, I am, as a scientist, I am a, a true skeptic. I, I, I will uh, look at everything with a very open mind um, and then, um, you know, tr look at fine strategies that, that appear to work based on reality. I think an, a, another sort of general issue is that the, the evidence hierarchy that is used in current day um, evidence-based medicine is is distorted, and it's distorted by an overemphasis on um, methodological techniques that give you, um, if you like, a um, a high uh, statistical power. And um, the problem is that within the real world, you have so many confounders that that statistical value starts to fall away because confounders have such important influences on the system. So we have a series of randomized controlled trials on which we make decisions that really don't apply that much to the real world. And we are desperately in need of new models that are able to measure the effects of multifactorial strategies in the real world. Um, to see how they function. And of course, that's something that clinicians are engaged with. And um, there is another project that we're deeply engaged with at the moment that is specifically looking at, you know, outcome-based um, approaches to to looking at uh, changes in overall health trajectories over time that, that could actually fill a gap here. Fantastic. I'll put a link in the description uh, for everyone to view that. One of the hallmarks is to optimise individuals' biological and genetic potential. Um, one of the arguments which I often hear is that the use of genetics to determine our biological response to nutrients, exercise and drugs um, is that this area of research is still very much in, in its infancy. So how could the healthcare system leverage genetics for a patient's benefit? I think the way in which um, genetics um, and epigenetics is, is useful is essentially for prioritization of health strategies. So, for example, um, there is no doubt that decisions that we make in terms of our dietary and lifestyle choice have the potential to outweigh any impact of, of genetics. So you can have someone who's very compromised. For example, I'm personally very compromised across um, a number of different systems, but by being empowered by that knowledge, I can alter the way I'm eating, moving, thinking, behaving, so that those adverse effects or potential adverse effects don't impact me at all. Um, so I think that is the most useful way in which genetics can be used to inform what strategies you should be using. So if you find that, for example, someone is very compromised in terms of their detoxification pathways, it becomes much more important that that individual isn't tries to minimize their exposure to xenobiotics, foreign chemicals, you know, additives and foods, pesticides and foods, um, paints and other, you know, air pollution, etc. I think that's that's the key way. Obviously, one of the reasons that we've got to look at genetic potential is that 
different people have different genetic thresholds. And, you know, we see this, for example, in the field of, of athletics. Not everyone can, you know, become an Olympic athlete. Um, usually Olympic athletes are people who are already genetically gifted and then they train very, very hard to, you know, work on marginal gains until they can perform at that kind of level. But that same principle applies to all facets of our lives. We become empowered by knowledge and um, because genetics is essentially our, our book of life, by understanding more about what's within that book, we can essentially make different choices that, if you like, allow our genet genetic potential to be realized. Are there any policy changes which are coming up that scientists, clinicians and the public should be cognizant of? Yeah, I, I, I would love to see on, on the dietary side, um, obviously, a major change in, in what governments are issuing. If you look um, at most health authorities and SACN in the UK, um, I like very much what they've said about um, free sugars not consuming more than 5% free sugars. Um, that is a real understanding about how those kind of um, refined carbohydrates can create a major issue. But at the same time, they're not recognizing that there are other sources of carbohydrate that can lead to similar issues. As soon as you start restricting carbohydrates, by definition, you will have to increase fats. And if you're going to do that, you need to start providing people with information that is more than just trans fats are bad and all other fats are kind of in the same group um, and um, or all polyunsaturated fats are, are in one group, um, saturated fats are in another group and uh, monounsaturated fat makes the third group. Again, it is more complicated than that. Um, and that's one of the reasons we've seen... Um, people criticizing uh, coconut oil because it's viewed as a saturated fat. Of course, once you understand how medium chain triglycerides function, they function very, very differently to say stearic acid or palmitic acid. Um, palmitic acid functions very differently to palmitic acid. And even more interesting than that is palmitic acid in the presence of palmitic acid functions differently in the body. So we need to move to this place where we start to have a better understanding of what fatty acid profiles look like. Um, if there's one thing that we need to stop doing to fats is processing the hell out of them. So, you know, highly processed vegetable oils that are very, very rich in polyunsaturated fatty acids are a big part of the current problem in fats. So someone who goes on a high fat diet and takes in lots of those fats is going to actually push themselves down a pro-inflammatory pathway because their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio becomes sky high. At the moment, in most Western countries, we've got a ratio that's sitting pretty close to about 20 to, to 1, whereas in evolutionary terms, we should probably be pretty close to a, a, a 1 to 1 or a 2 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to 3. So we've got a long way to go on that front. How integral is the integration or the collaboration of primary healthcare and complementary and alternative medical professionals when working towards a sustainable healthcare system? Well, it is it is absolutely vital. I, I think to to have two discrete systems that um, you know don't work together 
doesn't really work for for society um because people have such a, a if you like a polar choice and because the mainstream system is so coupled in with the establishment people who make choices that are outside that system even though they may be very good for their bodies do it in the knowledge that it's not supported really by by the establishment um and and that's one of the reasons that through the blueprint we've been um developing if you like a language that everyone can use so that everyone is on the same page so that the the the, the individual i don't even want to call them the patient because you know by the time someone becomes a patient they've already become diseased so but where the person the individual has access and an ability to understand that very same language that either a gp or um, a CAM practitioner can use it is vital. So yes, we we believe that it is really important that we're all on the same page. Can you provide the listeners with three bits of advice to help improve the health and move the dial towards a healthier and more sustainable way of living? Well, I'll, I'll give it a go. I mean, from from I, I think the concept of um, what I call choice points is absolutely essential in daily life in relation to diet and lifestyle um, behaviors. So people have to become really conscious. It, it's, you know, you, 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 you may be cycling your bike or driving your car. Um, you are approaching a petrol station. You haven't eaten for five hours. You are faced with a choice point. Um, you can look around that, that service station and you know, decide if you want confection or processed chips or a bottle of water. But you can also decide that you're going to actually not buy anything from that at all and you're going to continue your fast for, for a longer period. So becoming conscious of those choice points where you have a decision to make and you could make multiple decisions, but trying to understand if you like, what the right action is um, for society, for sustainability, for your body, for your long-term health, that is really handy um, because most of those choices that people make are made at a subconscious level and, and it's those subconscious choices that lead to long-term degradation of health. Um, that would be one. The, the second one um, really is about physical activity. Um, and it's to do with the regularity of physical activity. Many people, many of us, myself included, um, have jobs that encourage us to, to be seated um, or still for very, very long periods of time. To understand that to break away from that, to have a series of body weight exercises that you can... Um, I, I have my watch set to a, a timer that reminds me at hourly intervals and to be able to just do some body weight exercises, pick up some weights, jump on a, on a mini rebounder in the office, something that allows you to be active multiple times a day um, is really, really key. What and a that, fantastic idea. I think I'm going to give that a go, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. It's really not um, difficult and some of it is is adapting to the way in which others see it. But frankly, it's pretty contagious. We've got it happening in our office and, you know, it's happening in, in many workplaces around the world. 
it is, you know, sitting is the new smoking and we've got to find ways of, of dealing with that. Um, and the third one really is about um, not reducing stress, but transforming stress, understanding how you can shift negative stress to positive stress. And that really is to do with how you see the world going out there and, and actually being working to actually be a reasonable um, person that listens to people, um, helping people who are in a difficult situation to be in a better situation, um, giving a little bit more than you take um, is a great way of transforming stress. Um, and, um, you know, I, I live a life that is um, involves, you know, 80 hour weeks and sometimes more than that. Wow. Um, it could be regarded as very stressful by some, but nearly all the stress I, I deal with is positive stress. Um, and it's, you know, it's taken me a long time to work out the ways of doing it. There's a lot of self-development um, that we all need to engage in. But um, and I, I'm very interested to see that you know Rungan's latest book mm -hmm. is actually specifically on that on that topic. So it's, it's about stress, it's about stress. Yeah, stress transformation, um, really really key because um, you know I think so many people now um, find that the stress they deal with is really the reason that they find it so difficult to adapt to healthier dietary and lifestyle patterns. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing those three tips with us. So, Rob, I'll, I'll bring this conversation to a close. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, and the information you've shared has been hugely appreciated, and I'm sure the listeners will think so too. Um, and I do hope you can come on again sometime for another conversation. Look forward to it, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed all the episodes in season one. If you haven't already subscribed, I would highly recommend that you do so so you can be notified anytime that I release a new episode. If you have a second, I would be hugely grateful if you would consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make all the difference and helps this information reach more people. I will be back with season two very soon, so stay tuned, and I look forward to hearing what you think. As always, thank you to Joss Aurelia for all his wonderful editing, and Alan Harper for his support.